Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. Today, I'm speaking to the Tudor historian, Sarah Griswood. Sarah has written a number of acclaimed books, including Game of Queens, The Women Who Made 16th Century Europe, Arbella, England's Lost Queen, and Blood Sisters, The Women Behind the Walls of the Roses. Sarah has written a new book, Tudors in Love, which deals with courtly love, the courtship tradition that began in the 12th century but which was most prominent in the Tudor period. Sarah and I talk about those practitioners of courtly love, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and Queen Elizabeth I. I do hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Sarah Griswood. Welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thank you. It's number two for us. Thank you for joining us. And we're here to talk about your new book, which is out next week, I think. Tudors in Love, The Courtly Code Behind the Last Medieval Dynasty. Great. So uh, I have some questions for you, Sarah, and then mm-hmm. we can talk all about this uh, fascinating subject. Sure. So your, your new book, it deals with court, the courtly code during the medieval period um, and then obviously goes into the, the Tudors mm-hmm. in great detail. But what was courtly love and, and was it different to chivalry or was, or was it the same? Well, do you know, of course... Everyone says to me, oh, courtly love. Oh, how interesting. What was it? And you'd think by now I'd have come up with a snappy one-liner. But it's no good. That frankly defeats me. Because it's a bit like smoke. You know, it's everywhere and nowhere. There's been a lot of academic discussion as to whether courtly love really existed in the world beyond books and manuscripts. Um, I believe it did. But... It began in all with the songs of the troubadours and it was sort of crystallized in the late 12th century in a whole burst of literary activity. You know, so far so obscure, but the thing is courtly love didn't die. It, it, it never ever lay down and gave up the ghost to the degree that I'd argue not only did it deeply colour the, the you know, comportment of the Tudors, huge revival in the 19th century, and I'd say still affects all our ideas of romance today. But at its core, courtly love was literally, you know, what the words, what the words say. The words are, you know, only came into common use much later. But the idea was a fine, fin amour was one phrase, amour courtois, that this was a refined spiritual form of loving, which may or may not be platonic and unphysical, um, which was completely independent of marriage. And of course, marriage, you know, for an aristocratic lady of the, of the the 12th century or many centuries after was not a matter 
of love, pure or otherwise. It was something arranged by her family and for, you know, for their advantage. If she was lucky, she might come to love or at least like her husband, but, you know, that wasn't the deal. So at that time, late 12th century, the court of Marie de Champagne, Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughter, two, two books were probably written, which really encapsulate um, courtly love. One was that by Chrétien de Troyes, who actually the, the poet, the writer, said that it was his patroness, Marie, instructed him to write down for the first time the tale of Lancelot and Guinevere. King Arthur of legend, um, his, his dearest friend and his wife, having it off, basically. A, an adulterous love, very famous love affair, which nonetheless saw both partners honoured for the strength of their feeling. I mean, in the real world, obviously, church and state absolutely condemned adultery and could exact the harshest penalties on a woman, real savagery. But in this kind of, you know, wonderful fantasy world, Arthur and Guinevere were true lovers and that wiped away all sins. The other book that was written, probably there, was by one Andreas Capellanus, Andrew the chaplain, who set down in a whole book on loving actual rules for courtly love. You know how basically there's nothing that the, the lover, the, the knight shouldn't do for his lady, that true love always inc includes a me measure of jealousy. I mean, I do like that one of his rules was try to avoid lying completely, but hey, that's that's the dark side of courtly love, you might say. And it's possible that Andreas Capellanus had his tongue slightly in his cheek because he described actual courts of love where Mary, Eleanor and the rest, you know, adjudicated on knotty points of, of etiquette. And do we really think that happened? No, we don't. That's, you know, it's probably that fantasy that's brought the whole idea of courtly love into disrepute. But nonetheless, there was something there, a kind of emotional reality, um, powerful enough that the idea never went away, adapted through the centuries, but never vanished completely. You can see why in a way, because if you were an aristocratic lady, you know, perhaps with your own dreams and ambitions, which the real world gave no place to fulfill, you can see why this idea could be very appealing. So you mentioned the aristocratic ladies. Mm. Yes. And, and, and obviously they, they were often married because of, you know, their, their family requirements, you know, the sort of dynastic requirements. Mm. And, and it doesn't seem that many were marrying for love, obviously. Uh, but is that a bit of a misconception in, in, in some cases? Because uh, I was reading in your book, you know, Elizabeth Woodville seemed to have, you know, l love in that relationship. 
at least to me, my my rather sort of, you know, innocent. Well, uh, well, was there? I guess it depends. Sorry, I sound I'm sounding like Prince Charles. I guess it depends what you mean by love. Um, certainly, the meeting of Elizabeth Woodville and Edward the Fourth, the new young, you know, Yorkist king, was told as a piece of absolute bang on courtly fantasy. They're meant to have met on May Day, hugely important in the, the courtly love calendar. Um, it was said that Elizabeth held him off, you know, saying that if she was not if she was not good enough to be his wife, then she was too good to be his mistress, which is real, again, courtly love stuff, nobility by worth, not birth. Uh, whether that meeting actually happened in quite that way is a whole different story. But whether Elizabeth at that time, whether she, this, I don't know there's any indication that she fell in love with Edward then. She may well have sought the marriage, marriage with the king, why wouldn't she? And indeed, it came to be an extremely happy and successful marriage, despite Edward's infidelities. Um, that's the way things were meant to work. And for Elizabeth and Edward, it did. But the courtly element of it, again, slightly shows that kind of blurred line between fantasy and reality. You've mentioned him before, Andreas Capellanus, who's, who's got mm. these recommendations or rules yeah. on courtly love, which are, are quite amusing to certainly modern, modernise. Uh, but he does seem to encourage um, the abuse of women who are of lower rank, which is less funny. And obviously most women in the medieval period were not aristocrats, um, so probably not involved in courtly love. So how, you know, how stark was the contrast between the, the you know, the two yeah. groups? Well, it's a good question. You see, I'd say that even for the aristocratic women, woman, there was a great deal of appeal in this dream, this fantasy. But A, there's a question of, you know, whether it actually affected their lives in daily reality. But also, I'd say there are, there, there are some big traps for women in the courtly love fantasy. I mean... The, the dream, the ideal, put the lady on a pedestal. Trouble is, there's not much you can do on a pedestal except fall off it. You know, and it, it, it kind of had the woman as this, oh, admired, adored, pa but passive object. I mean, there is an old story about um, two World, World War II flyers, one English, one American, and one, I think, think it was the American, said, oh, in the States, we put our women on a pedestal. And the Englishman said, yeah, good idea. You can see their legs better that way. And I feel there's a strong element of that about the courtly fantasy, that while it seemed to offer women, ladies, a kind of um, power, potency, they didn't have in, 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 in daily life or didn't often have. Um, there were some real traps there as, well, we'll later I'm sure we'll get onto this, but as Catherine of Aragon, for one would find out. But as you said, yes, one of the dangerous things about courtly love to me is that it sets up the idea that there are people, women who matter and those who don't. And I think we see that 
cast out, you know, played out in all too many stories of abuse. Yes, indeed. In the midst of all these, you know, not highfalutin dilemmas about love and romance and spiritual love, he discusses what should happen if the knight, the lover, falls in love with someone not of his own order, not a lady. And if it's a woman from actually the peasant class, he says, a measure of force may be necessary as a convenient cure for their shyness. So you do really think. You asked earlier, what about courtly love and chivalry? And in a sense, courtly love is, you know, the feminine wing of chivalry. But you do hear something like that, a measure of force may be necessary, and think so much for chivalry. So moving on to the um, the Tudors, and obviously, you know, this is this is where it gets very juicy. Henry VIII would would court. That's why we love them. Yeah, mm-hmm. e- exactly. Henry VIII would court six wives, uh, mm-hmm. and, pr- and probably more more women than that. Mm-hmm. Um, is he the archetypal example of the male attempt at courtly love in the Tudor mm-hmm. period? Yeah, well, you see, it's an interesting word in that context, court, um, because. I'm not totally sure that Henry did court his later wives. I think it's absolutely right with the earlier ones, with Catherine of Aragon in a different sense, as well as, of course, the ultimate example, Anne Boleyn. But yes, I think I think you're right. I think Henry was besotted with the courtly fantasy. And in um, I, all I can do now in this time is just say it glibly. But in the book, I obviously you know, trace this out a bit more. One can see from his his reading as a child, a boy, uh, from the people, you know, the, the tutors hired for him and so on, that he had access to all the old, not only the Arthurian, but the courtly stories. And he was someone who was in love with the idea of love. He was in love with, he was a fantasist, basically. You know, you can see that early in in his reign or how, and, and before, how he loved dressing up, you know, Robin Hood, whoever, you know, um, all those games where no one was supposed to recognize him. In his early years, of course, he'd no sooner come to the throne than he rushed, suddenly swooped down to marry uh, his his older brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, which shouldn't the idea had been on the cards for years, but you know no one really was sure he was going to see it through. But Henry clearly loved loved Catherine, but also I think loved the idea of the rescue. Catherine had had pretty fair hell for several years, for a number of years in England, uh, you know, under the reign of. of Henry the Seventh, you know, she was sort of half the dead prince's widow. Um, you know, no one, she had no money and no place, basically. And he, one of Henry's first acts as king was to swoop in and rescue her by marriage. And she was. We think of her, tend to think of her now as this slightly dumpy, doughty, frumpy, older figure. But at the time, she was five, six years older than Henry Shaw, but that only made her, you know, in her mid-twenties, quite beautiful, 
glamorous um, and a kind of, you know, more experienced in the world than Henry, who was actually a very inexperienced 18 when he came to the throne. Catherine for the young Henry had all the attributes of the courtly lady. Unfortunately, one of the traps about courtly love for the woman in the case particularly is that it doesn't really deal with the the idea, you know, the long years of marriage, things getting less sexy and romantic, you know, people aging. And of course, in their case, all the, you know, Catherine's endless, unhappy childbed experiences. And really, you know, that is one of the problems with courtly love. You could say that the whole idea of courtly love wound up colouring our idea of romance and, you know, all the novels from kind of the 19th century onwards. And an awful lot of them, think Jane Eyre even, end with, reader, I married him. And that's it. End at the church doors. And again, courtly love, you know, didn't really give much material much space for the for actual ordinary daily life and maybe that's why Anne Boleyn you know the this figure this idea of Anne Boleyn um appeared and so enraptured Henry because certainly you can see it in their courtship and as you said sorry that was a very long answer but as you said in your question um Henry's courtship of Anne Boleyn certainly shows him absolutely delightedly flexing his muscles as the courtly suitor. You know, he, although he's the king, he writes to Anne about being her servant, about how his, you know, his, he, his heart and he are, you know, there ready for, you know, for her. He's really positioning himself as the archetypal courtly lover. And of course, we don't have the letters, tragically, the letters Anne wrote back to Henry, but we can only assume that that was a role she, with her continental education, was very well placed to play. Anne Boleyn, now she, obviously his pursuit of her, as you, as you say, it's, um, it, it's very interesting, but in, in Andreas Capellanus, and I keep on coming back to his rules because I, I, I find him quite, no, quite right. he's fantastic, yeah. Um, but Capellanus's rules, I think one of them it states, um, and I'm sh sure I've not got the quote right, so you can correct me, but it's uh, an easy conquest makes love cheaply regarded, a difficult yes. one causes it to be held dear. So, well, yeah, quite. Well, I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say Anne seemed to follow that one quite rigidly, didn't she? Um, well, yes, I mean, in, absolutely. I mean, indeed, who knows? There may have been an, an element of Henry himself holding off once he realised he wanted to marry Anne, and that any child they had had to be clearly legitimate. Um, but yes, absolutely, that whole idea of the period perhaps as long as seven years, when they didn't, you know, they were not lovers in the full sense. And oddly enough, in, um, in Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, which of course was printed in the very year, the months of the Battle of Bosworth, when the Tudors came to the throne, um, Mallory lamented that these days, he said, you know, men couldn't go a 
a senite seven days a week without getting there basically you know getting their rocks off but that in the old days true lovers could wait seven years if necessary odd coincidence that seven years may be about just about as long as henry and anne did but there really it really does seem likely that yes that rule you quote may well be the key to anne's huge appeal for henry i mean certainly even um cardinal wolsey who as we know was no friend to anne in the first place nor she to him heaven knows when he was trying to sell henry's marriage you know to rulers abroad and so on he said that he was pitching it that Anne's appeal for Henry was her virtue there's this long list of adjectives about you know her with all of which are the absolute classic stuff of the courtly lady and one of them is you know her determined her determined virtue her chastity basically well we we moved to Anne's uh, downfall um which which well i guess those allegations of of sexual misconduct were um were thrown at her but i imagine that the real reason is probably the lack of a male heir or certainly um you know a significant reason was was the courtly code applied in dealing with anne in it you know as we move to this stage of their uh relationship yes i think it was um as you say i mean the real reasons why Anne had to fall is something we all debate today. And the honest answer is probably it was a bit of a perfect storm. There was Henry's undoubted urgent desire for a male heir. There was political faction at court. There was even England's rapport with France and Spain, you know, played a, even played a part. Um, and there was Anne's falling out with Thomas Cromwell over over the dissolution of the monasteries. But what I'd say was fairly certain is that whether or not the real reason for Anne's fall, and I mean, you know, one reason, not obviously the whole reason, was her, her, her comportment, her behaviour as queen, that she continued to behave more like the courtly mistress than the wife. Even if that were completely untrue, it's still notable that it was... The kind of relation, those adult, those adulterous relationships, those flirtations described in the literature of courtly love that were brought as accusations against her. So court, I'd say that those old rules of courtly love were certainly used against Anne. They provided a weapon in the hands of those, whether it was more the king or Cromwell, who wanted to destroy her. Even as Anne um, was arrested, was taken to the tower, you can still see some of those old tropes at play, quite precisely. I mean, Anne on her way to the tower said that, you know, she thought perhaps the king was only doing this to test her. Well, fat chance, I mean, it was pretty unlikely, but that was a very, very repeated gambit of courtly love scenarios. Um, in the tower, Anne speculated that perhaps she might be allowed to retire to a, to a nunnery, but she a convent, but she also recalled predictions that a Queen of England would be burnt. 
Well, it's an odd coincidence, hard to believe Anne didn't, didn't think of Arthur's Queen Guinevere sentenced either to the flames or to a nunnery. Well, yes, that's what I wanted to get onto, actually, because well, I mean, she wasn't burnt. She um, she was beheaded. But Anne's execution and the nature of it, you know, Henry's use of this finest French swordsman uh, as delivering the blow um, is 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 often mentioned as, a, as an example of, of his sort of chivalric or courtly love, the, the character that would... Um, uh, that showed that he, you know, he did sort of care. But but to modern audiences, that seems quite a strange way to express one's love. Um, are we are we going wrong in somewhere there? <laughs> um, I think again, it's it, it's it's a complex pattern. I think that um, Henry's mind, like that of his daughter Elizabeth, you know, was a particularly complex matter and I think several things may have been going on here I mean yes in a sense it was a kindness in that the sword was likely to give a swifter and presumably less agonizing death than the axe but the fact that the sword was also a powerful symbol of chivalry and thus of you know the sort of courtly code think Excalibur um, may have had, you know, several layers of meaning here. Because on the one hand, yes, it could be a kind of strangely chivalric gesture. On the other hand, this was the code through which and against which Anne was held to have offended. So that's the end of part one. In part two, out next week, we discuss more of the Tudors, including Henry VIII's other wives, that tragic figure, Lady Jane Grey, and perhaps England's greatest monarch, Queen Elizabeth I. So do join us then. Thank you and good night.